Tonight I'd like to um, share some observations and have us investigate together one of the three main aspects or manifestations of the deluded mind. This particular manifestation being that that in the Pali is called dosa, translated as hatred or our friend aversion. One, I am proud to say, of the few subjects on which I am an expert. (laughs) So, I think it's really important in speaking about it, the mood I'd like to hold this in is not one of, you know, we hate aversion, (laughs) we have to get rid of it which is often the way we greet this particular visitor, but more to hold this exploring, this aspect of suffering, this aspect of the so-called deluded mind, to hold it in the context of our potential of freedom and peace, to, to realize that aversion in all its many forms and grades is not who we are. It is not our personal possession and it's not a sign of personal failure and that you're an evil person when you experience it. We need to really be able to recognize that it's simply an obscuration of our essential peace. And so in that way, rather than you know hating and fearing it, we can get interested in understanding how does this, how does this manifest? How does it function to keep me deluded, to keep me lost in suffering, to distract me from essential peace? Okay, some of the... This is a brief list of some of the manifestations of dosa. Aversion, ill will, irritation, boredom, resistance, denial, impatience, Annoyance, anger, rage, guilt, dislike, hatred, depression, sorrow, regret, violence, aggression, cruelty, fear, anxiety, terror, self-judging, self-hatred. And anything else you can think of. in your own experience. (laughs) So I really want us to look at this with the intention to understand rather than to judge, because it's really very interesting. Aversion, and I'm going to use aversion instead of dosa, and it covers all of these aspects, okay? It's just, you know, shorthand. It arises due to ignorance If you think of ignorance, a definition of ignorance being not knowing things in their true nature. You know, a lot of times we think of ignorance as, I'm stupid, I can't do it right. But think of ignorance in a more more open way of simply not knowing things in their true nature. This is actually why aversion arises in any moment. Joko Beck says, that our misery stems from the misconception that we are separate. And certainly it looks as though I am separate from other people and separate from all phenomenal existence. So as long as we think we're separate, we're going to suffer. We feel we have to defend ourselves. We feel we have to find something in the world that will make us happy. Aversion in whichever form arises in a moment from this misconception due to this misconception that somehow I'm separate. If you look at it, whether it's aggression or fear, there's somehow the perception that I'm separate from this painful experience and somehow I can hold myself separate from it. That somehow we can get it out of here. And I'll just continue on my happy, merry, separate way, except that we're miserable instead of happy and merry. 
And so in the moment the aversion arises from this misconception of separation and also functions to strengthen it because it pulls back from experience and in fact creates that very separation that is the cause of our suffering. And so it continues in the cycle of ignorance, confusion, aversion, separation, more ignorance, confusion, separation. So, thinking that ignorance is the cause of aversion, then maybe we can hold our investigation of aversion in this attitude of interest. Oh, how does that work? How does it work to keep the cycle of suffering going? How does aversion function in a way that keeps this sense of separation feeling so real? How does it keep me distracted from resting at ease in whatever arises? One of the famous quotations from the Buddha, in this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? So I wonder if you're really being in touch with yourselves. How does our heart or mind or rather our conditioning relate to this statement? Only love dispels hate. We will pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? When I really look, I can find mixed responses. And I I start with this because I just want us to be aware of our conditioned views around anger, fear, aversion. So when I hear this in one way, I think, oh, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. That's a really beautiful ideal and a great way to live. And then I come down to myself and go, possible? Forget it. It's really nice, but it doesn't seem too rooted in my experience of what is possible. It's helpful to see, to realize that the Buddha isn't given to making nice metaphors that aren't related to our experience, that he's talking very literally here, that hate never dispels hate, that love is the strongest power. How can we, no matter what, hold on to annoyance with another? Can we even let that in as a possibility that it's not just true for the Buddha, it's true for all of us at any particular moment? Not to hold this up as an ideal that if I don't do this, therefore I'm you know, bad, awful. We call this aversion, this particular form of thinking. Not to hold it up like that, but to open into our minds and hearts the possibility <coughs> that for me too, in this moment, I might be able to recognize that. And so with that in mind, we begin to explore our attitudes towards aversion, towards fear, towards pulling away. In another place, the Buddha said, lust, hate, and delusion, think of hate, is a maker of measurement in the mind, meaning that Hate imposes limitation upon the range and depths of the mind. Quite literally, the natural mind and heart is unbounded. So think about when we're caught in a moment of aversion in any form, that experience is quite distinctly one of constriction, one of separation. The sense of heart-mind unbounded is not there. Can we also let in the possibility that the heart and mind that is unbounded is actually our truest and natural state, not the constriction of fear and separation? This certainly has not been the conditioning that I grew up with or that I find prevalent in the world around us. I don't know about you. Um, Where I grew up, 
I mean, actually, kindness and generosity was the baseline of my family. It wasn't a horrible, violent family. But what I really learned when I look back, because I see it with me now, I don't have to look too far back, is that discussions can start out amicably, but when it really comes down to the nitty-gritty and there's something I really want, the person who gets the loudest and the angriest wins and gets what they want, that kind of adage that there is in this culture, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. We see that happening all the time. There's, um, last year there was a book on the bestseller list called How to Argue and Win Every Time. <laughs> and the, uh, it's on the bestseller list in the New York Times. And the subtext was Ways to Win Arguments at Home and at Work. <laughs> That's really, you know, when it gets down to it, can this nice loving kindness stuff and <laughs> get to the, to the point. <laughs> And when someone does act really from a heart and mind unbounded, it, it's so inspiring to us, first because unfortunately it's much rarer than how to argue and win every time, but also I think it touches that place in us where we know this is really the truth. This is really a potential for us. And I think maybe that's why uh, little news stories about such people can get national airplay because in some way it's touching that place in all of us that knows love is really stronger than hatred. I won't read this whole article. This was just in the paper this week. Um, the gist of it is about a man who's uh, in his 30s and when he was 10 he was kidnapped by somebody and um, shot and left for dead by this man with a grudge against his father. And so he lived, the man didn't know it, he abandoned him, and this boy was found, and he lived, although he's blinded in one eye, from the bullet. And they never found who did it, until recently, when the sheriff, the same, I don't know, the same police officer who was on the case then is still working, and he always had a suspicion who it was. And the person he thought it was has t- turned up in a nursing home, really an old decrepit man who was dying, and in fact, I think he just died when this article came out. And he, the, uh, the police guy went and talked to this man, and he was dying and lonely and completely miserable, and he admitted that he'd done it. And so the man who was um, shot had completely forgiven this man already. And he became his only visitor at the nursing home. He would go and visit him every day. And this is until he died. And this is what he, just one thing he said. You know, he was blinded in his eye. But he said um, he did not feel that he had been permanently traumatized, adding that he bore no ill will toward the man who had kidnapped him and left him to die. It was not hard for me to show compassion given his circumstances said Mr. Carrier, who is married, has two daughters, and until recently worked as a youth minister. I moved on. This event did not haunt me all my life. And he goes on to say, I'm glad he was able to put the past behind him. He went and really kept trying to help him know that he was forgiven. I tried to let him know he had a friend. It's just very touching. You know, very sweet. And this guy's not making some big deal about it. He's just very matter-of-fact. That's our potential in any particular moment. We get plenty of moments here to work with it. That's one of the functions of a retreat. So what I'd like to, to do for a few minutes is just talk about some of the ways that aversion arises in our experience here, just so we can recognize and begin to see how it functions. Without prejudice, without thinking, oh God, the hated enemy, just to explore it. I think the first most important thing to recognize is that in whatever form we're experiencing 
aversion from very mild to very strong anger or terror. No matter what the content is, that it is a mental state that is arising always here and now as a response to a present moment sense experience. In other words, either a sight, a sound, a thought, or an emotion, a physical feeling in the body, a taste, a smell, any of the six sense experiences, an unpleasant experience that's arising in this moment. Even if we're lost in fury at something that happened ten years ago, or that might happen ten years from now, what's actually happening is a response of aversion to an unpleasant thought in this moment. So I find that very helpful in that it takes me out of getting lost in content and into being able to see what's happening right now that's causing this explosion of story. Once we can recognize that, and of course it's easiest with little things, small aversions, don't pick the biggest one, you know, in your day. See what happens when you can notice the sense experience arising, when you notice the response of aversion. What's actually going on? There's contact. Say there's an unpleasant sound. There's the sense contact, hearing, the unpleasant feeling, and the aversion is the mind, the attention, the energy, as it were, flinching back, just ever so slightly disconnecting from that particular sense door experience. Like really, literally feels like a gap between attention and the particular object, so to speak, of experience. So that actually it is a disconnection. That's why it feeds the sense of separation, because what it does is pull back from experience and not be able to connect. And of course, in that gap, which takes like absolutely no time, this whole surge of associated thoughts, emotions, other sense experiences, memories, reactions, fueled by the aversion, can just come flying up and the whole thing cycles into a much stronger experience. So, a slight example, unpleasant sound, the window being opened, and we look up and see an unpleasant sight, and immediately the thought, that sound, that's just like what my mother used to do. Every time I just got comfortable, she'd come in and throw open the window, she had no respect for what I was thinking, and that's really affected me my whole life, and then you have a glimpse of that person again, so there's another seeing contact, and then a wave of rage. And what had just been an unpleasant sound, an unpleasant sight, gets completely blown up out of context. There's a whole story, a whole filling of unpleasant experience. That particular person gets so categorized by our mind, you know, they become the demon of the ages, or whatever it is, And there is, at this point, no seeing clearly. There's no wisdom, there's no sense of just knowing what's happening. And it can go on, as I'm sure you know, for hours. Something that was really quite minor in the beginning. One moment of disconnection, and we don't notice that. Another moment of disconnection, and we don't notice it. And pretty soon, we can be really enrage your terror about something that isn't even happening, that maybe never happened, or that maybe will happen ten years from now. If this keeps going, I'll end up, you know, in whatever, if this is how I keep behaving, and on and on and on. Completely out of touch. And if we don't recognize what's happening at some point, then the mental strength of this leads us to unskillful conduct. We say something, we do something, We write something. I mean, here we don't do too much. The worst we do maybe is write a note, which can elicit a lot of pain. But out in the world, we can do a lot more than that. I mean, I hope all we do here is write a note. I hope we don't even do that. But all the things, once, once we get out of touch, then we continue to respond, not being able to see clearly what's actually happening. 
this is really where, of course, mindfulness is always our strongest protection. So I'll keep coming back to the mindfulness, but I'll, I'll talk more about the way aversion works. But in that moment, at any point in that process, if you can remember, oh yeah, what, however strong this feeling of fear or aversion is, it's arising right now in response to an unpleasant, difficult experience right now. Can I bring my mindful attention in and connect, either with that sense experience, the coolness of the air on your skin, if it's from the open window, or the sound, if it's a sound that's eliciting it, or the sight of a person, if it's a sight that keeps triggering it, but right to the sense door, or else come and feel the sensations in your body, just being with the unpleasant, the aversive feeling itself. Because as soon as we're doing that, we're countering the disconnection of the aversion. Again, the heart, the mind, the attention is connected with present moment experience. That's the protection of mindfulness. In a moment of mindfulness, there's complete connection with what's happening. And in that moment, there's no room for greed or aversion to arise. There's just what there is coldness, unpleasant, sound, unpleasant, sensations, unpleasant, thought, unpleasant, just there what there is. In that moment, the mindfulness is a protection. It's always our ally. It always can be accessible. It doesn't have to be precise. But to recognize any form of aversion as a disconnection and call on our ally of mindfulness, to connect again in this moment. It only takes that moment to reconnect, no matter how far and how long we've been gone. And I know it's not that simple. I mean, it's simple when we're aware of it. It's simple when it's a little thing. I know very well that a lot of the time it is far from being that simple. I am totally caught in fear. I will simply reconnect. Fear, fear, fear. Oh, yeah, fine, that's right. And it doesn't. I know it's not that easy. But that doesn't mean to give up on it. You know, um, in Dan Goldman's book, Emotional Intelligence, he has a section where he's talking about a lot of different aspects of... Well, he's talking specifically about anger. And in a version, I'm covering all the different aspects, including fear. He's talking specifically about anger and citing several uh, studies, kind of um, physiological studies, that showed how, because I don't have all the science right, I'm just going to be able to give the overview. Uh, when something uh, unpleasant happens and, and uh, brings up a reaction of anger in a person's mind, has a corresponding physiological, physical response, which is hardly news to any of us. I mean, we didn't need a study to know that. What, he, what these studies then showed, and again, this is what the Buddha said, that the experience of anger might pass fairly quickly from the mind, but the residue of the uh, excitation in the body of the hormones releasing takes longer to fade from the body than the uh, angry experience does from the mind. So the Buddha also said that, that the mind changes so much more quickly than the body. So because of that, and this is what we can experience here as part of how yogi mind works, if yogi mind is triggered by uh, anger, that the aversive difficult experience passes, but the body's still slightly reacting, and then another unpleasant thing happens and there's a reaction in the mind of anger. And then that physiological stimulation comes into the body, but the body's already still a little bit triggered, so the response of the body is even more hyped up. And so by the time the cycle keeps going, you can think in your mind that unpleasant things have come and gone, you got angry, but you relaxed, and then all of a sudden, one little incident happens, you know, what we call the straw that broke the camel's back, and we just explode in rage or fury, and sometimes we don't even know why. 
but it's because there's been this kind of uh, snowballing effect so that by the end of it, a little unpleasant experience that we haven't been mindful of can really elicit a huge response. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. My friend, a friend of mine was telling me as a good example of this, he was he was at some sort of amusement park place. Like, I think it was Universal Studios in uh, Hollywood. And he went into a, a fast food place and was in line to get a Coke or something. And the man ahead of him was really in a hurry and very impatient. You know that kind of feeling when you just have two minutes and you want to go have some fun again. And the people are slow and the waitress was slow. And the guy was, I guess, just really angry and impatient and hyped up. And so my friend tried to just say something very nice and soothing, which <laughs> you know how well that goes over to some stranger, you know. And the guy got really, really aversive and angry at my friend. Got his coffee or whatever and stomped out. And then my friend waited in line, got whatever he wanted. After some minutes, went back outside. And the man was like standing way across, the, not the parking lot, but the area, I guess, where you stand with those little tables and drink your coffee. And he seemed like he'd sort of calmed down. But just the sight of my friend walking out the door <laughs> so upset him. He just got completely jangled and spilled his coffee. My friend could see this just like, <laughs> this is the kind of way that without awareness, aversion just builds on itself. And we find ourselves really reacting off the wall and we don't know why. So that's one way. Anger can really build and get out of control. Different experiences. Another way that I've noticed a lot is that we can find ourselves sort of at the end of the train of ongoing uh, building anger without realizing how we got there and be you know, incredibly negative or find ourselves suddenly in a, a long, really vitriolic chain of self-judgment and have really no idea how this arose. So I find often it's helpful to step back and give a big picture because what can happen is you could be having an ongoing, very mildly unpleasant experience. For instance, I've noticed when I'm physically tired, uh, which can, of course, last all day or so, that when I tune into my body, it's very uncomfortable. There's pain, but it's very low grade. It doesn't call my attention if I don't deliberately look at it. But it's unpleasant. And so it can be arising many moments during the day. And when I don't notice it, I'm just not aware of it, there's like slight aversion, slight impatience, slight annoyance that's so quiet, I don't really know what's going on until suddenly I just turn around and snap at somebody. Or I, or I sit down and I notice that my mind is in a litany of everything horrible and selfish I've done since I was 10 years old and I didn't go to this party with this friend of mine, you know, and really with hatred, you know, and I go, oh, what is going on? And I just want to say, oh, my body hurts. And it's just mildly unpleasant. But the ongoing nature and the unseen quality of it can lead to a whole mood of actually a lot of uh, unpleasant aversion or fear. Soon as I notice it, recognize it, land the attention, oh yeah, tiredness, 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 unpleasant. It's just that. It doesn't have to lead into this whole taking us away. But again, it means the willingness, the ability to connect with what is unpleasant. So that means the wisdom to know that ultimately we are not separate. If somehow there's still the underlying belief that I can really be separate from this unpleasant experience, then we'll keep trying all the manipulation to make that happen. So really what it takes is a seeing of, all oh, right, unpleasant. It's just what's happening. And in that can be the freedom from getting so lost in the aversion. And then, of course, 
there's the times when whatever's unpleasant going on is far less genteel. And the response is definitely not one of just noticing subtle sense experience arising and passing. You can still bring in mindfulness, just don't worry about being too precise. Or I noticed this some years ago. I was beginning a few days retreat when I was manager here. And it's really hard when you're working here, when I was managing, to even get three days in a row to sit, even though you're supposed to have five a month. It was very hard to do that. And it had been two or three months, and I was really holding on to my three days. And someone, we won't say who, but someone who definitely should have known better, waited until just as I was going into sitting to bring up something that they said was really urgent, that couldn't wait, and I had to, during my sitting days, meet with somebody and interview somebody, all this stuff, something that I just got furious. The kind, you know, where, of course, one is right. The self-righteous kind of, where obviously they should have known better. The kind of anger that really justifies itself and just grows and grows. Then I went on with my sitting, and it was really interesting, because as I paid attention, I really, this is where I learned in a way that I've never been able to ignore again, that as much as I believed and acted out the anger, and I wasn't really doing anything other than saying, yes, it's true, he's a jerk, he should know better, and all these things, I can't believe it, and writing you know, letters to him in my mind, and actually storming into his room and telling him what I thought of him, the more that I did that, with some mindfulness, the more I saw that the anger was, this was not releasing it. This is, I think it's, I really got it, that it's a false concept, that if I really let it out, it releases it. It just got bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger until it was like a black fire burning in my gut. It was so painful and unpleasant until I finally gave up. I mean, I gave up thinking I could do something about it. And I just went out and said, okay, I'll just be with anger. And that's when I learned about stomping meditation instead of walking meditation. I went way out in the back field, and I was just stomping, stomping, anger, anger. That was as precise as I could get with mindfulness. But it was good enough. I stomp for a while, an hour or so, and then, you know, gradually it becomes walking. And just huge anger becomes burning and tightness and black ash, you know, in my stomach. And I really learned, first, that it is possible to be with anger. It doesn't feel good. There's nothing pleasant about it. It's not like I came out of that like, yes, you know, I'm really a great yogi. It felt bad from the beginning to the end. But I really saw the suffering and the nature of separation in the experience of aversion that strongly. This is again Joko Beck. She says, can we find in ourselves a willingness to rest in the confusion and the unpleasantness. That's what's so hard. Can we just find in ourselves the willingness to rest in the confusion and the unpleasantness? As she calls it, to let the mud settle without having to do something right away. It's hard, whether the confusion is anger or fear. And All that is is mindfulness, and so we just do the best we can, but finding how to rest in it. It is difficult, and the other form of aversion that is fear is one of the things that makes it difficult, our fear of experiencing the unpleasant, our projection of how bad it's going to feel to be with this unpleasant experience is already aversion. It's the fear, and that's what keeps us holding life, holding experience at a distance. And we can go to incredible lengths to avoid an imagined unpleasant experience. I don't know if you ever noticed yourself doing that here. I do it a lot in my daily life. When I notice it, it's really helpful because the fear of unpleasantness causes me to subject myself 
to so many contortions and so much more difficult and unpleasant experience than just meeting the original unpleasant experience that it's, it's quite amusing, actually. Just a recent example. Some months ago, a very good friend asked me if I would come teach a weekend with him in Canada a certain time next year. I knew the minute he asked me that it was not going to be possible because my schedule is really packed. I knew that. But he was really trying to talk me into it. He's a very good friend. I never see him. haven't seen him for three years. And so right away, this coagulation of fear. If I say no, I'll feel badly because he'll feel badly and he won't like me anymore and he'll think I don't like him. So I stalled. That was months ago. And I went through all kinds of contortions, trying to shift around all these commitments I have for next year to find a way to fit in flying up to Canada for this particular retreat at this particular time, even though I already feel overextended and I'm really working to find balance in the way that I teach and I get really stressed. Even all of that, I went to huge lengths to try to switch everything around in order to avoid the projected unpleasant feeling of his disappointment and being mad at me. And it was ridiculous, really. And it turned out to be impossible. I couldn't do it. So then for the last three weeks, I've been putting off calling him to tell him. <laughs> Every day, I think, I've got to call him. And fear comes up and fear of how he's going to feel and then he's not going to like me. And oh no, another person doesn't like me. I can't <laughs> make the world happy. Every day I have this thought. And so there's this heavy, it's ridiculous. Finally, last night, I got home from talking in Cambridge. I got home at midnight, and there's a message from him on my machine. You know, oh, no, I've got to call. Please call before 9 in the morning. You know, so I called him. I was trapped, no way out. I, it was totally pleasant. You know, he, he completely understood. It was lovely to reconnect. There was like no, none of the unpleasantness that I'd projected even happened. I'd sub- submitted myself to four months of ongoing unpleasant experience to avoid that moment that didn't even turn out to be unpleasant. It's insane. This is really ignorance at its highest pitch. Separation, disconnection with reality, and what if I would just meet a moment of fear, we would save ourselves months of suffering and torment. So think of that next time you find yourself going to some incredible contortions here to avoid the pain that's going to come in the next moment or the next sitting or the next time you hear that sound. And just dropping into the experience will just save you all that grief. I wish I could just pass it on to myself. <laughs> Never mind you guys. <laughs> I wish I could just pass it on to me. <laughs> so, not only does aversion separate us from experience, it completely distorts our perception of reality. It distorts our judgment. When we're in fear or anger or aversion, we can't make any kind of balanced, clear decision because we can't come from knowing what's really true. Like, really, once I'm done with the fear of what my friend was going to say, knowing him all these years, did I really think he was going to blast me and hate me because I happened to be busy a particular weekend next year? Of course not. That's ridiculous. But the fear, the separation from experience, completely distorts our judgment. So we can find ourselves doing all kinds of nutty things and really not knowing it. Okay, that's kind of broad and obvious. Well, it's broad, maybe it's not always obvious. I want to mention another manifestation of this aversion, which you think of holding back from experience, that's very prevalent. It's been coming up a lot in interviews, but that can be much more subtle, so sometimes we don't recognize it. And it's the form of aversion that we would often call resistance. Resistance just kind of meaning, you know, no, I don't want to, I just don't want to be here with this, whatever this is. 
Sometimes resistance is really obvious. The two-year-old throwing a tantrum, no, no way, I don't want to walk now and nobody's going to make me. That's obvious. But sometimes, and someone brought this up in a really uh, clear way today, I really liked the way it talked about it, sometimes it's a very soft and quiet but pervasive background mental state of resistance that's actually coloring our perception of anything that's arising in the moment. But we're not really recognizing because it's not hard, it's not harsh. In fact, this is what he's saying, is often it's a stance, a mental state that has become very familiar to us throughout our life. Maybe uh, for some of us, resistance has been, as, a, as it were, a protection against pain and suffering that maybe as a child was actually too, too great to think that we could bear. Or even without that, we just have developed a stance of holding ourselves a little bit away from experience, feeling that it's a protection, a friend. And so that when this mental state, this pervasive mind state of resistance arises, we might not recognize it as such, but how it actually feels is really comfortable, like an old friend, or like this person was saying, it's sort of like wrapping yourself in a warm old blanket. You know, just think, oh, I just, I just don't think I'll sit right now. I don't really think I need to get so, pay so much attention to the breath or noting. I'll just kind of sit and be at ease, you know, and it just feels kind of nice and comfortable. But if you really could notice it, it's resistance. It's a form of aversion. The effect it has is of just keeping attention a little bit removed from experience. So you might find you try to meet the breath because there's no big thing going on and just can't quite get there. Try to notice the sensation and you're aware of it, but there's really this feeling of disconnection. The energy isn't quite there and you can't quite figure out what's going on. Again, open up. I'll often just ask myself, what's happening now? And then in this big background picture, I'll notice, oh, I just kind of don't want to be here. I just don't want to be feeling my mind and my body. It's that simple. Okay. (laughs) And rather than try to push through it, Simply turn around and notice our resistance. Actually, if you use noting, note it. If you're not using noting, really notice it. Let that be the place of connection. Our resistance, resistance. Just kind of let it wash through and really feel it. And again, it doesn't have to be unpleasant even. It's almost like, this is my old friend. I don't want to let go of this. But at least we're noticing, again, we're connecting. The resistance is not being fed. And one other way that resistance often manifests, and in this way can be unrecognized, the Buddha said, uses this phrase, an untaught worldling. That's people who don't really look at how the mind is working. An untaught worldling does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. So therefore, one proceeds in the, when, when faced with painful feelings to look for and enjoy sense pleasures. And in doing that, then the tendency of the mind and heart to lust, to grasp after pleasant feelings, comes to underlie the mind comes to be a sort of underlying, pervasive tone in the mind. And so sometimes we might notice, we don't actually notice aversion, we notice we're getting lost over and over again in pleasant fantasy. And you really notice it, you notice the pleasantness and you come back and you can't really, you get this feeling something else is going on but you don't know what. Or sometimes it's not even just as simple as pleasant fantasy, but we, we find ourselves actively going after pleasure. You know, somehow 
food, the pleasantness in food, suddenly assumes a tremendous importance on a particular day or series of days. Or we're just lusting after reading anything. You know those times when you just read the toilet bowl cleanser over and over and over anything, you know, for some some pleasant hit, but we don't quite realize what it is we're doing, you know? This is really... At times it is wanting pleasant. At times, again, back up and look a little more broadly. It might be a manifestation of resistance, a slight holding ourselves away. There's something going on that's difficult or unpleasant to be with that we're not even aware of, and it's manifesting in this restless search for pleasure. And really, that's why we're so lucky to be on retreat, because I feel in life we do this a lot. You ever find yourself in the car on a quest for ice cream or cookies, you know, or I go out to do an errand and suddenly I must stop in the bakery and get a cookie. And I'll check in and go, why? I'm not even hungry. And I've I've really learned to do this now because nine times out of ten, some vague, unpleasant or unhappy memory has come up or emotion has come up or some longing has come up, some loneliness that I didn't really notice. And it goes into this, well, let me just get something sweet and then I'll be happy again. You know. I actually learned this the first three month course I ever sat. I hope to save you from doing this. I was having a, a way well into the course, like in November. It's the only time I kind of broke retreat. I had a car here and I went into Barry and bought like a big bag of chocolate chip cookies. Not the good kind, you know. You can't get the good kind in Barry, so don't even go look because you won't find any. (laughs) This is a really bad, bad thing I did, so don't think about it. (laughs) But I brought it back to my room. And I started just eating, like one after the other after the other. I'm, and I'm not, I don't normally binge. That wasn't like a normal thing I did. It took me two-thirds of the bag to notice that what was happening was this empty, gnawing, lonely, fearful feeling. And each cookie I ate, I was sort of hoping for it to drop into that feeling and fill it up. But it missed it and went to my stomach. <laughs> and then my stomach started really hurting. And then I oh. I get it. <laughs> These two don't, eating cookies doesn't help this feeling at all. It was a major learning. Being with that feeling, with nurturing mindfulness, is actually what was helpful. Oh yeah, okay, I can be with this. Just hang out in it. It's okay. That's where the wisdom, that's where the freedom comes. So I hope I've saved you from doing that. Okay. And then the last, not the last, but the lesson I'm going to talk about, aspect of aversion, and one that can easily arise even in just beginning to look in your experience here. Whenever we begin to think about a particular thing, aversion or clinging, we begin to become aware of how often it's actually arising, more than we were aware of before we were mindful. It's easy to kind of let that aversion turn against oneself and become quite judgmental, quite self-judgmental. Oh no, you know, I didn't realize actually how completely hateful I am as a person. Or my practice is really awful because look how much I'm getting caught in it. And she said, be mindful, and I'm mindful, and it doesn't go away. It just gets bigger. Or sometimes a real fear of oh no, all this aversion, this fear is generating more negative karma. And so it's like a fear of being with it. Just to know, just to recognize that any form of judgment towards self or others is just another form of aversion, another pulling back from experience. You don't have to believe it. Judgment is not an accurate evaluation of who you are or your experience, almost never. It only increases the cycle of distortion and denial. 
And I say this because the thing that I've actually found for me to be the most helpful in learning to understand and feel a lot more spacious around the tendency of the mind to get locked into a version of fear is to make friends with it. Is to, to see the judgment is just judging, not believe it, and say, okay, it's just another arising condition, the lesson of anatta. It is not who I am. And as soon as I can just see a version arising due to conditions, the condition of this mind, there's a lot of space around it. And in that space, it's become really fascinating to explore, to see just how the conditions of a mind that is in the long habit of aversion works. And it brings in a lot of humor, a lot of lightness, and again, uh, more and more sense of impersonality. So in that, I'll just share with you some of the things I've seen about how that conditioned aversive mind works. And not everybody's the same, of course. When I said I'm an expert on aversion, it's because, you know, we joke around about the different personality types and that some people's conditioning is more in the line of aversion. Some people, the mind goes more easily towards greed and some more easily towards delusion. We don't get away. I mean, we all get all of it. Don't worry. But some of our minds tend more in one way than another. And in that way of talking about things, which it's useful if it helps you see how the mind is working. It's not useful if you're going to start identifying and typing yourself, you know, and making yourself crazy. But in that way of looking at experience, my mind definitely is a classic aversion type. If they say, for example, if you wanted to, to check, if you go into a room, what do you notice? Aversion type will go in if you're traveling with someone, you go into a hotel room together. I'll immediately notice what's wrong with that bed, it kind of sags, it's too close to the bathroom, the mattress looks a little lumpy, that one's near the window, I'll take that one. <laughs> My friends who are greedy would walk in and they would say, oh, that's a beautiful bed, the light from the window is really nice, it's sitting very lovely, I like the, the sense of space around it, and it's airy over there, I'll take that one. We both focus in on the same bed, but one from what's wrong and one from what's nice. And the delusion just wouldn't really notice. So my advice is to travel with a delusion type. It works out really well. I can see I'm not going to get I'm not going to get through all this tonight. I didn't want to leave you on a totally depressing note of I did have some things to do about working with aversion. I don't think we're going to get to them. <laughs> I'll have to continue it next time. I just want to continue this train of thought because it's uh it just got really interesting to me. It's lightened it up completely. To notice that just what happens in the mind condition to aversion is that given a whole field of experience, the mind will go right to what's unpleasant. I was on a ferry in Thailand a couple of years ago, a beautiful sunny day, lovely water, just about an hour ride to get to this beach. Everything was pleasant with my friend, sitting up in the sun, looking down. There's a lot of people on the ferry. And I completely zero in on one woman who's really making a spectacle of herself. And my mind says, gosh, she's obviously American. <laughs> the Americans are always the one. People hate Americans when they're traveling. Everyone can tell I'm an American, too. And I went through this whole thing. I mean, she was American. It was true. <laughs> and uh, over in Thailand, I can see not that many Americans, more other nationalities. But anyway... I pulled back, I noticed this. Actually, there was so much pleasant and neutral experience happening, and that unpleasantness was really minor. But this mind just goes right for that, and then pulls back and separates from everything else, and the whole story builds up. It's quite amusing if you can just see the mind do that. So then I've also noticed if anything new arises in experience, something new 
unexpected, some change. If you come and ask me, oh, I have this new idea for anything, the immediate, immediate response before it even bypasses conscious awareness is no. It's no good. I don't like it. It's not going to be as good as it is now. Even if how it is now is horrible. I've learned this about my mind. If I can keep my mouth shut and let it go, no, that's no good, it stinks. And then, okay, that's done with, and I can evaluate quite balanced way. Oh, yeah, maybe that would be nice. Really look at it. If we believe or get reactive to that aversion, then right away we're caught in it. I have to defend why it's a bad idea. Or then I have to, you know, let down and, and say, oh, I'm really sorry, I'm being a jerk, and then I turn the negativity against myself. But if you can just see it without reaction, there's space again. You don't have to buy into it. And under that, begin to see that what triggers the negativity is actually fear. That anything new coming into my experience elicits fear. Nothing to do with rationality, and it's very slight. Don't even notice it. As soon as I can see that, it's okay. Unseen, it triggers a whole solidified reaction. And it can be so subtle. I noticed the other morning, whenever I fill the tea kettle to, to heat the water, I invariably put in way too much water. And it takes a lot longer to heat, and I'm always in a hurry in the morning. And Franz is always saying, why do you put in so much water? You know, it's obvious, it's too much. I noticed the other morning, it's fear. I put in the water, I can tell it's enough, and they oh, but it might not be enough. And then I have to heat up some more, you know. So I throw in another bit of water, that whole extra bit is too much, and I have to wait the time for every single day. I do this. That level, just a little shoot of fear, it's fascinating. It doesn't have to be any judgment, but just to see how the mind works. And then it's operating in a ground of freedom, in a ground of anatta, in a ground of selflessness. I really am not going to, okay, I'm really not going to be able to finish this tonight. So I think I'll, I'll, think I'll continue next time because I don't want to just leave with all, okay, here's all the ways that we're aversive. Go deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll give a little quick, a very quick summary (laughs) of how to deal with it. The first and always resort, our greatest protection is mindfulness. At whatever level you can bring the mindfulness in, because it's connection, whether it's to the, the immediate sense contact that's eliciting the reaction of aversion, whether it's on the broad level of stomping, stomping, anger, anger, whether it's in the subtle background sense of a flavor of resistance or denial in the mind that you can't really touch, but you can intuit it, you can feel it. All of those levels of mindfulness are all helpful. They connect us with reality, take us out of identification with the negativity. A second mode of balancing is something I talked about last week in Wise Attention, to see when we're hopelessly caught, or you can't really tell where, where you're getting caught in the negativity. You just know it feels too big or too confusing, and that's to deliberately balance your perception to bring up what Thich Nhat Hanh calls seeds of joy. So, for example, I notice myself thinking on retreat at the end of the day, this has been a really crummy day. I feel rotten, my practice has been awful, the people here are a pain in the neck, you know, this has just been horrible, the weather's bad, and, and I'll just stop and say, okay, balance. Deliberately notice what's not wrong. Almost like counting my blessings. And at first, I have to stretch a little bit. Okay, I have a nice warm bed to lie in. I'll give me a break. Okay, well, well, I have my health. Actually, it's lovely to be here. You know, and at first it feels forced. Pretty soon, it's just flowing. All the beautiful and pleasant and all the grace in my life. And it really balances the coloring of unpleasantness. 
or just open from the physical to hearing, to seeing, or go take a walk, all the different ways we've talked of backing off, balancing perception. The third, and this is uh, what I think I want to talk about more next week especially, is to work with the metta practice. The Buddha talked about five different ways of working with annoyance or a grudge you hold against somebody when you're caught in it. And the first one is to practice metta. Practice metta to yourself and then to the person or the thing you're upset with. But I would really advise to yourself first so it's not this kind of I hate this person's guts. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. And kind of fooling ourselves. Open to your own pain. The method does not deny that. It actually gives it the ground of acceptance. So that rather than judging ourselves for not being perfect, there's a sense of metta, of acceptance of just who we are that gives an open-heartedness and strength and courage to then be with whatever it is that's difficult. And again, I'll talk more about this next week. And the fourth is, and I, I, again, I mean to make this sound as like a last resort, but again, it's patience. <laughs> Not the patience of, oh God, all right, until it's over. But again, it's connection to just be with things as they are, to give up any expectation, to give up any sense of what should be happening or wishing that things were other, just making friends with the experience of fear, aversion, whatever it is, as it is in this moment. All of these are aspects of wisdom because ways of connecting of really knowing what's true rather than being lost in the aversion which keeps us from knowing reality as it is. The connection again accentuates, lets us re-recognize our essential completion, whether it is with fear or aversion or self-judgment or knee pain or beauty or joy. So this aspect of patience, of just being with what it is and give up any grandiose thoughts of getting somewhere is actually a a great um, manifestation of wisdom. Okay, so I'll just end tonight by saying that it's not, I don't mean to make it sound that it's simple. Aversion, dosa, fear are very difficult states to recognize, to be with, to have a spaciousness and kindness towards ourselves and them when we're experiencing them. Please don't judge yourself or think that if we could really see this clearly, it's all going to go away. And on the other hand, we don't want to make such good friends with our aversion and fear and the aversive quality of mind that we actually think, you know, it's really not too bad. In fact, it's kind of really serving me, you know, this whatever aversion. I think I won't really do too much about it. I'll just kind of wallow in it a little bit. I'm exaggerating, but there's a way we cannot quite sum enough up enough, um, what the word is, I guess I would say commitment in ourselves. Commitment not to hate ourselves, not to think I've got to uproot this with a pickaxe, not to think it's never going to arise, but the commitment to keep meeting the unpleasant with a willingness, as Joko said, you know, to sit in the middle of it, not to feed it, not to push it away, but to really let ourselves just sit there with mindfulness, knowing that our greatest purpose is really liberation. And in order to come to freedom, it's only in this moment, going into the experience in this moment, rather than trying to avoid it in any way. This can take great courage. It can sometimes be discouraging because it's moment after moment. But you can turn that around and say, okay, this moment I got lost. Now this moment, there's a new opportunity. I'll close with this from Yoshal Kempo. The essence of awakened enlightenment, Buddha nature, is present in everyone. It can't be changed or degenerated. 
no matter what we do. And that's really good news. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore or overlook it are deluded. This recognition of our true nature is the borderline between Buddhas and ordinary beings. And it's the great crossroads at which we find ourselves every moment of our lives. So every moment is a new crossroad, a new opportunity to recognize our Buddha nature. Let's just sit for a moment.